For the next two episodes of the Discover the Word podcast, Elisa Morgan leads the group in a two-part study of an important figure in the life of Jesus, John the Baptist. When we think of John the Baptist, I giggle because a lot of times it just sounds like, you know, John the Baptist, his last name is the Baptist, right? Yeah, or that's his denomination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the way John lived his life is super significant because of the way he lived a life that points to Jesus. As we open up our scriptures, we're going to spend 10 conversations on one unique life that in all of the roles that he occupied on this planet, in every single one of them, he lived a life that pointed to Jesus. And so join Elisa Morgan as she guides Mark DeHaan and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day through this study of someone Jesus called great, but who really wasn't even the main character in the story of his own life. And he was good with that. And so are you living a life like that? John the Baptist and how living a life that points to Jesus is a great life. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries, in which we explore topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And so in this episode, we begin this two-part study that will be focusing on how John the Baptist lived a life that pointed to Jesus. It's a study that will demonstrate how from womb to tomb, that's what John's life did. And as we understand more about John, I think we'll come to understand that uh, our lives can point others to Jesus as well. And so what we know about John the Baptist begins before he was even born. And while the birth of a child is always a special thing, uh, from the womb, John was a chosen child, created to point others to Jesus in a very unique way. And so let's listen as Elisa begins by asking Mart and Bill and Daniel a question. Take us back to when you guys all who were dads were expecting your first child and thinking about what dreams did you have for your children? What anticipation? What concerns? Just something about that story, especially your very first one. You know, I was so immature. Mm-hmm. I don't recall having those kinds of dreams and hopes. I mean, it was just happening. Okay. Yeah. You felt like you were on a roller coaster ride and you couldn't get yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, we were just trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now? There's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uncertainty part is the part that I remember most. And I, I remember it because he was about five days late coming. Mm. And so oh, every yeah. extra day went. I mean, Marlene felt like she was about 18 months pregnant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when he was born the uncertainty of whether he would live because mm-hmm. he, he almost died when he was born because he was too big for her to deliver. And he was like nine pounds, eight and a half ounces. Mm. He was almost full grown. <laughs> <laughs> so he was in neonatal intensive care for mm-hmm. like a week. So I bet you had uh, a lot of thoughts and prayers and hopes and dreams in those minutes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Daniel, what about you? Just the, I guess, cycle of emotions is what first comes to mind so like the initial Mm -hmm. excitement of oh this is kind of a surprise and you know we're excited about that because we weren't necessarily trying for Mm -hmm. kids yet Um, we were young in our marriage and all that so it's kind of a surprise we're excited a little bit like 
I don't know if we're ready for this. I guess God thinks we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, just we had a lot of uh, miscarriages in our family. Mm. So we didn't know what our story would be. And right. so there, then there was that fear that kind of settled in for mm. a while of mm-hmm. what may or may not happen. And, and then hearing the heartbeat for the first time and how exciting. I feel like the whole journey was moments of really high highs, moments of pretty intense fears. I don't think any birth story happens the way you think it's going to happen. And so all of that together. So, So, Elise, are you surprised by our answers? You know, I'm processing there and I'm actually wondering if if it's a different experience for women than for men, you know, for moms than for dads. But because I've never been pregnant and my children came to me through adoption, you know, I don't actually know. What I know is that because my kids came to me through adoption, the gestation period was four and a half years. So I had a whole lot of hopes and dreams. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when we have a child, even if it's, you know, from the moment we find out we're pregnant or from the moment we find out that we're going to receive a child through adoption, there is something about this child being ours, chosen Mm -hmm. for us, stewarded to us for a purpose. I mean, when we know God, we know that everything in our lives, but especially Mm. another life, Mm. has a purpose. And, you know, we want to get in line with what God's desires are. You know, I remember praying Hannah's prayer. That was with my daughter. And then with my son, I remember focusing in on James 1. I think it's verse 17-ish. Every good gift is from our good God above, you know, those kinds of divine set-apartnesses. As we open up our scriptures, we're going to spend 10 conversations on one unique life. John the Baptist, many people know him as that. In all of the roles that he occupied on this planet, in every single one of them, he lived a life that pointed to Jesus. And we want to start off with the role of he was a chosen child. He really was a very special child. Now, why am I saying that? Well, I think we want to look into scripture and find out. We're going to look in Luke chapter one. Let's start off just verses five to seven and get some background on him. Daniel, would you read those for us? In the time of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Okay, let's summarize John's parents. Both were from a priestly line. Mm-hmm. What do we know about that and what difference does it make? They were going to be primarily concerned with things going on around the temple. The priests were more concerned with conducting the ritual and sacrifices. And okay. Stuff. And they're both from priestly lines. What else do we know about them? A priestly line all the way back to Aaron. They've tracked their descendants all the way back to Moses' right-hand person and really the first priest Mm -hmm. in Israel's history as a nation. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, too, because, you know, we read the genealogy of Jesus and it tracks back all the way. So it's interesting that John's Mm -hmm. heritage tracks back to the priestly role. Mm -hmm. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth were how old? Very. Very. (laughs) Which is what most women answer when you ask how old we are. Very. (laughs) Right? Yeah. 
And what do we know about Elizabeth specifically? She couldn't conceive. Yeah. Okay, now in verses 8, and let's read down to, oh, maybe 17 or so. We can go around, Mark. Would you start us? And let's hear how he's informed that he's going to be the father. Okay, verse 8 of Luke chapter 1. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, while yet in his mother's womb. And in verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. All right, we're going to really dive into this in all of these conversations. But as we look at him as a chosen child, there are some phrases that kind of set John apart. Like verse 14, he will be a what? A joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Which is so interesting. I mean, we Mm -hmm. always get happy, you know, at at a baby being born. And then verse 15, what do you see there? He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. That's really interesting. And we know about that from the interaction Mary has when she goes to visit Elizabeth when Mary's pregnant. Elizabeth is in about her sixth month. Luke tells us about this as well in Luke 1, 39-ish. John Mm. does what in his mother's womb? He leaps. He leaps with joy. And so we know about this Holy Spirit before he's even born. And then he's got this role in verse 16. He's going to bring back many of the people of Israel to their God, and he's going to go before the Lord. And we're going to look at those verses in future conversations. It almost sounds messianic. It mm-hmm. does. You know, the parents, first of all, sound idealized. So they're, they're blameless. They keep all they the are. law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then this description makes you send this great sense of anticipation of a very unusual kind of person. I think we're going to hear that echo of messianic a lot as we look at these scriptures about John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... The messianic overtones come from the fact that he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah because the last Old Testament book written, Malachi, promised that there would be a forerunner before Messiah came. And so this angel is saying, okay, you're it. Mm-hmm. And there's so many themes in this from other Old Testament stories, too, that just make this feel bigger even with the age of Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's like, oh, is this like another Abraham Sarah story? And then so true. the mm-hmm. fact that he's not supposed to never take wine or other fermented drink, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, a Samson story. Yeah. Like, so there's a lot of that weight kind of coming mm-hmm. into the story. And too. the Elijah story as well, because Elijah's mentioned, he'll go before him in the strength and the spirit and power of Elijah. And then in verses 57 to 64, there's the process of naming. You know, when Zechariah was told he was going to be a dad, he struggles to believe this is true. And the angel tells him he's going to be struck dumb, unable to speak until the baby's born. And so when they take John to name him, this is the first time Zechariah is able to speak. And I love these verses. Maybe pick up 
verse 65 of Luke 1. Could one of y'all grab that? And 66? And fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. I think this whole chosenness about him, and all the neighbors are filled with awe. And everybody who hears about it is asking, what's this child going to be? The Lord's hand is on him. And, and that phrase is used like 200 times in the Old Testament, referring to God's deliverance. John was a child who was chosen for an amazing purpose. And we're going to look at all the roles that he occupied. But let's start off with that. You know, John was a chosen child. He really was a very special child. chosen to, in a very specific and important way, live a life that pointed to Jesus. So much to reflect on already. And so I think that's a great start to this series of conversations about John the Baptist called A Life That Points to Jesus. And the first role that Elisa identified there was that he was in so many ways a chosen child. Well, that is just the beginning of this study here on Discover the Word that will identify 10 characteristics or roles that can help us describe John and his life that pointed to Jesus and maybe help us see how our lives might point others to Jesus as well. Well, next, they're going to talk about how John leveraged his uniqueness to point to Jesus. In a lot of ways, he was seriously unique, what I'm sure a lot of people considered borderline weird or maybe not even borderline, but he was unique. And you also are unique. Who you are and where God has you gives you unique opportunities to point people to Christ. So let's continue looking at John the Baptist and a life that points to Jesus. Can y'all think of some individuals who seemed really unique or different, or even odd for God's purposes? Who comes to mind that really was an odd individual when you read their life story in Scripture, or even in history? Oh, Samson. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Walking contradiction in terms, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Explain that. What do you mean? Well, I mean, he was born to deliver Israel from the Philistine oppression. And yet his very first action was to take a Philistine wife. And that just started, tripped a whole bunch of dominoes that took him down what ended up being a very self-destructive yeah, path. And, but his birth, I mean, an angel yeah. proclaimed the coming of this child to the parents. And it sounded like, this is going to be the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And all the little details of his story that slowly come out throughout it, like, oh, you know, that one day when he was walking through and decided to eat honey out of a lion carcass. Okay, and, <laughs> as you do, <laughs> right, yeah. Right, like yeah. just those moments where you're reading his story and it's probably one of the more fun stories in some ways to read, especially if you can let your imagination really build out some of those scenes. But a tragic story. But then also yeah. tragic and then so much death. And Yeah. I've referred to Samson as someone who's considered a hero. He had the strength of a superhero, but he had the actual function of an anti-hero. Mm. Mm-hmm. So he was a very complicated mm-hmm. guy. Who comes to mind in our more contemporary life that we might know that's, they're just an odd person, and yet I can see God using them? I think of somebody like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. Who was so singularly focused mm-hmm. on what he believed was the mission he was chosen for, which was to speak out on behalf of Christ 
and against the Nazi movement. I have to believe that there were a lot of people in his generation who looked at him as an odd duck Mm -hmm. because he just wasn't willing to toe the company line. Even among the church. Yeah, even Mm -hmm. among the churches, that's right. Yeah, I think we could look at a lot of our more contemporary heroes of the faith and think they kind of were odd individuals. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know, of course, but, you know, D.L. Moody or Hudson Taylor or Jim Elliott or Amy Carmichael or, you know, there's a lot of people that just were a little bit different. And as we're continuing to look at this chosen child, John, who we call John the Baptist, he was a very unique man. And I want us to look at some of the scriptures that explain or express his uniqueness. Let's just start off looking at what he wore. <laughs> can can somebody read Matthew 3? verse 4, and it's kind of repeated in Mark 1, verse 6. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Okay, what do you do with little that? Little crunch, little sweet. <laughs> <laughs> now, his clothes, camel's hair clothes, you know, he lived in the wilderness. You know, it's a rough garment. What I read in, in commentators that it's an expression of John's kind of separation from the world. His clothes were not for show. They were for usefulness. He lived in the desert. He lived in the wilderness. And he didn't really care what he looked like. So that would have been in contrast to like the priests of the temple, and right? all their robes and regalia yeah. and stuff. Sure, that's good. And it's also echoes, and that's one of the words we're using about John. It, it echoes the dress of Elijah, right? His diet, honey and wild locusts. You know, you mentioned Samson and eating honey out of the carcass of a lion. Well, you know, this is... Again, an echo, isn't it? But, you know, crickets are not that unusual in a Middle Eastern diet. Even today, some people still eat bugs. But it was like a common dietary Mm -hmm. food. So as weird as as this feels, maybe with what we eat or what we wear, is kind of the core message of Matthew and Mark as they're emphasizing this. Like, he dressed simple and he ate simple. Not what you expect, but there you go. Now, I want to dive a little bit more into another passage that expresses what a unique man he was. And this is in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. If we could just go around and read that. I'm going to interrupt you in a couple of places to just point out a few things. But Bill, would you start us? Luke 1, verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. And we'll just pause for a second. This is like a a psalm set in scripture here. It's known as the Benedictus. You know, it's general comments about the mission of God is what Zechariah starts out with. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's doing this, okay? He's talking about redemption. He mentions this animal's horn and it represents power and this mercy that goes back to the ancestors to fulfill his promises to Abraham and rescue from enemies. Okay, let's go on here. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, 
because of the tender mercy of our God. Mm. And now these are specific comments about John, the roles that he's going to be a prophet. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord as a forerunner. He's going to help people understand real salvation Mm. and the mercy of God. It's interesting that he's a prophet, but he's in the priestly line. That's not totally unique. Isaiah grew up in the priesthood family and became the great prophet of the Old Testament. So it's not completely unique, but it is a little bit unusual. Those lines don't always cross. Mm. So another unique characteristic of him. Okay, then in verse 80. Yeah, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. What verse in scripture does that remind you of? Well, the first part reminds me of what will be said about Jesus, Mm -hmm. that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Yes. I mean, technically, Jesus also then goes straight into the wilderness. (laughs) Absolutely. So there is, I I guess, both of those there. Okay, what is this wilderness, Daniel, you just mentioned that that's Mm -hmm. very similar to what Jesus did. But John seems to stay in the wilderness. Yeah, well, it's thematic throughout the Bible Mm -hmm. for a place of preparation, a place of intense being with God and being dependent on God. So it's almost like a little nod to him being perhaps a person of prayer, a person of spending time with God, a person who's just being prepared for the mission that he will have because it's a very intense mission when he comes out of the wilderness and starts preaching and baptizing. It's a short mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, just a sense of preparation and walking with God and dependence on God. In great contrast, here's a man of such spirituality, and yet he wasn't getting it from the rabbis. He wasn't yeah. getting it from the that's, temple circles. Yeah, yeah. You talked earlier about echoes. You think back to Moses, who spent time on the backside of the Midian desert watching his father-in-law's sheep. You see Elijah spending time in the wilderness during his early years after warning Ahab of the drought that was coming. And again, like you said, Daniel, all of this becomes a pattern of how God prepares people for unique tasks. Even the Apostle Paul, we're told, spent two years in the Arabian desert after he came to Christ. I think we're accustomed to viewing Jesus as a unique man. But just personally, as I look at the uniqueness of Jesus as I see it in Scripture and compare it to the uniqueness of John as I see it in Scripture, there's a difference in their uniqueness, maybe because of the difference in their purpose. How would Mm. you differentiate John's uniqueness from Jesus' uniqueness? And how did John's uniqueness point to Jesus? He was basically telling the people of his times and the the temple leaders that they were not ready at that point for the Messiah who was Mm -hmm. to come. Yeah, it's in a sense the difference is between the sign that says the city is 20 miles ahead and the city itself, Mm -hmm. because he was the sign pointing to Jesus, but Jesus was always going to be more than the sign pointing to him. But he was in the face of the Pharisees and the temple leaders. Absolutely. There was a way in which people were drawn to Jesus in a like loving, soft, kind, like those are the types of terms that we often think of. Maybe not as much for the Pharisees who Jesus often called out to try to challenge some of their ideas. But for the most part, like those who are most vulnerable, those who are weak, are very drawn to Jesus for his softness. Mm -hmm. We never really get a picture of John the Baptist or the John the Baptizer as a Mm -hmm. soft Mm -mm. person. Mm -hmm. Even his clothing 
is rough camel's hair. So that to me is at least part of it. Yeah, that really sings home to me, Daniel. John wasn't Jesus, but it's interesting people thought he might be the Messiah. People were constantly Mm -hmm. saying, are you the one who's supposed to come? And he said, no, it's not me. There's another one coming after me. And isn't that dramatic? You know, his uniqueness, and you said that so well, Bill, it was like a road sign pointing to the city, not the city itself. You know, how do we in our own uniquenesses, in our personalities, in our circumstances, eh, you know, we're supposed to, quote, be like Jesus. We're never told to be like John, right? Mm -hmm. But how like as John's uniqueness pointed to Jesus, how can our uniqueness point to Jesus as well? Yeah, that's a pretty powerful ending to that part of the discussion. And so, Have you ever considered how the things that make you unique might be the very things that help you point others to Jesus? Well, I hope that conversation is an encouragement to you to uh, cherish forever what makes you unique, because that is a big part of how you, like John the Baptist, can live a life that points to Jesus. Now, in that part of the conversation, you might remember that uh, one of the odd things that John the Baptist did was live in the wilderness. And we'll continue to talk about this theme of wilderness as we continue to explore the different roles and purposes John fulfilled. But what was this desolate place, this wilderness, actually like? And more importantly, does it really matter? Well, our Bible geography expert here at Our Daily Bread Ministries, Dr. Jack Beck, addresses those very questions in episode two of his Along the Road video series. And I would highly encourage you to watch this episode on our Our Daily Bread Ministries YouTube channel. Just type Our Daily Bread and YouTube, as well as Along the Road, into the search on your web browser, and then look for episode two in that series, Into the Wilderness. Our Daily Bread, YouTube, Along the Road. Search that and explore some videos by Jack Beck that will be a great compliment to our study right now. Now, in typical dictionary language, a forerunner is defined as a person or thing that precedes the coming or development of someone or something else. Synonyms would be precursor or herald. And used in a sentence, the icebox is a forerunner of today's refrigerator. Or, John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus. Well, next, that's what they're going to talk about. How the Bible, in a lot of different ways, some of them pretty surprising, describe John's role as the forerunner of Jesus. Someone who came before and got people ready for the Messiah. Another way, John the Baptist lived a life that pointed to Jesus. I want to ask you all a series of questions to try and make a point here. How do most weddings begin? What happens at the beginning? Well, the official start of the wedding is when the mother of the bride comes in, because <laughs> she's what triggers everything else. I mean, I've done a bunch of weddings in my life, and really, that's kind of the moment when everything starts getting serious, mm-hmm. is once the mother of the bride's in, because when she stands, everybody stands, then the mm-hmm. bride comes in, and then it can mm-hmm. really start. So. And the bridesmaids come, mm-hmm. the uh, attendants, the groomsmen come, and they stand there, and then the bride. So this stuff happens yeah. beforehand. There's a prelude, usually, that they walk into. And, but <laughs> all of these things, she doesn't just walk down the aisle. There's a buildup to it. Yeah. There are these, these things that happen before her, 
Okay, now, second question. How do most races start in terms of auto races? Now, I'm not real big on this, but y'all maybe mm-hmm. watch NASCAR or something. You know, How do they start? What starts off the race? With driver introductions, and okay. then the guys go into the back of pickup trucks, and they take them around the mm-hmm. track. And then... You have opening ceremonies, which begins with the national anthem and a prayer. Mm-hmm. And then the most, the most famous, famous word in motorsports, <laughs> which is what? Gentlemen, start your engines. Yeah. All right, one more. How do most big superstar concerts begin? Well, after you spend way too much money on tickets <laughs> yes. and Ticketmaster charges you three times as much as the ticket for their fees, mm-hmm. um, you get there and usually there's somebody that gets up and plays some music first, maybe a hype person as well to kind of get you hyped up and excited about it. Yeah. And that's not just music, but like comedy as well. Sure. So there's some kind of warm up. Right. And the point of these three questions is that there is a, a tradition or a practice of warming us up to the main event. And as we look at the life of John, John, who we call John the Baptist, one of the roles that he occupied was as a, a warm-up, a warm-up mm-hmm. act. That's very sacrilegious to say it that way. But he was a forerunner to the Messiah. He called himself that. Scripture calls him that. In this conversation, let's explore what that role really looked like and what it meant and how it had significance for the coming of the Messiah, the real Messiah. Yeah, the term that it uses in the Scripture to describe his forerunner role is prepare the way of the Lord, Mm -hmm. to prepare the way of the Lord. And, you know, as I've thought about John's ministry I thought it was more prepare the way to the Lord Mm. than of the Lord. But he was to prepare the way of the Lord. So somehow, in some way, he was preparing this so that when Jesus came, it would make sense. Yeah, it didn't make sense to very many people, but to some it did. But you know what? Let's start right there, Bill, with Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is a very powerful text. It's one that's used to describe John Mm. the Baptist. Bill, would you just read that for us? Sure. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so literally you think about preparing a way. It's like you can't get to the Lord without the highway being built. Mm. It's almost that kind of a feeling. And it wasn't easy to expect the Messiah to come in the form that Jesus would come. John had to, as you were saying, Mart, almost brittily change expectations, didn't he? What does this mean to make a highway? Well, one of the things that jumps out to me is just the pictures I've seen. I've not been there, but of roads Mm -hmm. and just the fact that it says make straight in the desert, a highway for God. The roads, the paths are way smaller than we think of (laughs) than Mm -hmm. a highway. And they twist and turn and go through valleys where there's danger and like making it straight, make it a place that people can clearly see and walk on. In fact, in Isaiah 40, verse 4, Daniel, exactly. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it. Do you think that the wilderness and the desert is talking about the literal wilderness or desert? Or do you think it's talking about the spiritual condition of Mm -hmm. Israel at that time? Yeah, the more we look at John 
the more it's going to be the latter. But he was also in the wilderness. He was in the yeah. wilderness. So it's ironic, you know, yeah. in that way. But, but it's a beautiful picture of really what was there, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the emptiness. And I think in that sense, uh, at least to your point of warming up, Mm-hmm. an audience. Yeah, he had a tough message, but it was the people who responded to him and accepted his baptism and his invitation to confess their sins. They were the ones whose hearts were warmed. They were the ones who were able to hear Jesus and see him That's for so who he good. was. That's so good, Mart. And it's surprising because, yeah. you know, we talked about earlier that he was unique. You know, he was a little bit strange. Yeah. And people who were able to hear him were ready for the differentness of Jesus. Yeah. Okay, let's look now at Matthew 3. And can we go around and read like verses 1 through 8? Sure. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. There's that reference again. Uh, But then in verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It really is what you were saying, Mart, isn't it? You yeah. know, he's, he's really slapping them upside the head of, you know, your religion's empty. Mm-hmm. This is not what we're here for. Salvation isn't accomplished by your good deeds and your self-righteousness. Yeah. There's something else here. And there's some irony there, too, because it's who warns you to flee from the coming wrath. That's part of John's message. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, well, you are. Yeah. <laughs> right? So there's like a kind of a play on words there too. Right. In Luke chapter three, Luke includes maybe more of the same kind of discourse that John makes. Bill, would you grab Luke three, seven, and let, let's go around together just down to verse 14. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Isn't that so interesting? He's confronting empty religion about it's not all up to your works. These people are so attracted to that, but they all come and say, well, what do we do then? What do we do? And John speaks straight into their circumstance of don't do what you've always done or what's customary. Let's choose differently. And in so, as a forerunner, he's pointing to the different gospel that Jesus is going to bring, isn't he? Yeah. And I wonder if that kind of helps us with the hard edge that he seems to give to the Pharisees and Sadducees, because he's not just picking on them. Mm -hmm. Each of these major groups of people that we're going to see show up throughout the Gospels, show up in this story, the soldiers, the tax collectors, later it'll be called the tax collectors and sinners. Mm -hmm. And so each of these groups of people are asking what they should do. Mm -hmm. And so it's like each one is asking a question, and John gives them a response. And that makes sense, doesn't it? When we're confronted by something, by someone, And we feel like, okay, all right, you're right. 
what do you want me to do? I mean, that's just <laughs> yeah. kind of the question. Now, well, what do you want me to now do what? then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. John takes just a tiny different tweak here in chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replies in the words of Isaiah, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He calls himself the forerunner. There's only going to be one John the Baptist, of course. But just want to close with this. As we look at this life of his that pointed to Jesus. I think to myself, is there any way where God's inviting me to be a forerunner, to point others to him in that way? John helped wake people up to receive the truth of the graciousness of the gospel, that it is not up to us, that it's up to God. That's what Jesus' mission was for all of us. In all those ways, we can point to Jesus. Yeah, that's a great question. In what ways can we be forerunners, pointing people with our lives to Jesus? That's one of the roles John the Baptist had, and understanding that helped him stay focused on living a life that pointed to Jesus. Well, you're listening to Discover the Word with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Mark DeHaan, and we're taking two episodes to focus on how John modeled for us in so many ways what it means to live a life that points to Jesus. And here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries, we don't take our responsibility to help our faithful listeners shape their lives to point to Jesus. As friends sitting down at the table and exploring the scriptures together, you know, being in community, well, let me just say thanks for joining us on this journey as we try to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible known to people all around the world. And Discover the Word is just one aspect of how Our Daily Bread Ministries is accomplishing that mission. And it's all made possible because of friends like you. Listener, reader, user donations are what fuel our ministry and have for over 85 years. And so if you'd like to join us in continuing to make the Bible understandable and accessible across the globe, you can partner with us on our website at discovertheword.org. Click Donate there at discovertheword.org. And together we can help transform thousands of lives marked by the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, next, they're going to talk about baptism. Uh, We're looking at some of the various roles we find John in in his life. And so next, it's the fairly obvious role of baptizer. I mean, it's part of his name. But what is it about the Baptist that contributes to our seeing that he lives a life that points to Jesus? And how might that be a model for us in how we live? Well, I think you'll find this a helpful part of this study of the life of John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. Around the table, we've often shared our own personal baptism stories. I mean, many of us have been baptized more than once. Right? Have you? I have been baptized three times, yes. You have. Yes. I've got four. And Bill's got four. <laughs> and you've got how many, Mark? Oh, just one. Just once. You did it right. I've been everything but dry cleaned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. I think it's interesting to turn it around, though. And have you ever baptized someone else? Have you been a part of that officiating of baptizing? Many times. Many times. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty special. And I have not. Yeah. I haven't ever baptized anybody either, but I was actually just sitting in church with my youngest grandson the other day, and it was a baptism. And in our church, sometimes parents will baptize their children. And I began Mm -hmm. to think about it. What a special role 
It is. When we think of John the Baptist, I giggle because a lot of times it just sounds like, you know, John the Baptist, his last name is the Baptist, right? Yeah. <laughs> or that's his denomination. Yeah. Yeah. He started his... the Baptist church. Yeah. <laughs> we assign these meanings to it. But what I want to talk about is why did the Baptist get attached to John's name? I mean, what's really interesting when we look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and the angel coming to them, he's to be named John, not John the Baptist. But we've named him John the Baptist. Why did it get assigned? And what's the significance of that? Well, it's not so much a name as it is a a role. It's a role that became a title, in a sense. And it's because that's what he did. He baptized people who were coming to declare repentance of their sins. And from our perspective, looking back on the story, he's most notably John the Baptizer or the Baptist because he baptized Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. And that announced Jesus' public ministry to the world. And to Jewish people who were being baptized by John, baptism had a very special cultural mm-hmm. meaning, didn't yeah. it? It did. What do we know about that? Well, they had mikvah baths, which were ceremonial cleansings. And if you ever go to the Bible lands and go to Qumran, you can actually walk down the steps hmm. into a mikvah bath and then walk out the other side. You didn't walk out on the same side you came in because you walk in dirty and you come out clean is the way it worked. And that was kind of the ancient Jewish equivalent of baptism. Which had to do with confession of sins, had to do with ceremonial purification. Okay. Let's go as we look at this next role of John the Baptist as baptizer, another role. I want us to spend some time in Matthew chapter 3. And we'll start reading verses 1 through 12. Daniel, do you want to start us in Matthew 3, verse 1, and we'll go down through verse 12 around the table. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him. Okay, pause for a second and just let that settle in with all we've already talked about. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Yeah, and Matthew saying, this is he who was spoken of through Isaiah. He's making the connection for us. And this is really speaking then to the hearts, isn't it? When Mm -hmm. he talks about, you know, prepare the way. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of the soul. Yes. Yes, not just doing the right things. Yeah. Okay, verse 4. Mark, do you want to pick it up? All right. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. What's the significance of, I mean, we know about his clothes, he was unique, and there's some Nazarite-ish kind of vow thing here, some Samson echoes, lots of things there. But what is the significance in verses five and six of people going out to him from Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of Jordan? So the significance of people going through this ritual and then from the specific area. I think at least part of the significance has to be that he's the voice of one calling in the wilderness, not in the city. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so the people have to leave the cities to come to where he is in order to hear his message firsthand and then to respond with submitting to baptism. So a a big part of it then is what he is not, right? Yeah. This message that he has is not coming out of the temple. 
No, it's not coming out of those circles. They were not going to get that message in the temple. Correct. That's right. Okay, then he goes on, and let's pick it up in verse 7. Daniel, would you mind? But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's baptizing all people who were coming out to the wilderness. And Mark, you made this interesting comment about the message couldn't come from the temple. Now he's dealing with people coming from the temple, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what's John's message to them? It's not about being part of God's chosen people. It's not about ethnicity. That's not what gets you into a relationship with God. And, I mean, we see this even in some of the debates that the religious leaders have with Jesus. We are the sons of Abraham. Yep. They're always lifting up that chosen people ethnicity as their ticket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says it's not about that. Yeah, they didn't see what was broken or what was lacking in themselves. Yeah. You can't auto enroll in the kingdom. You know, that's a phrase I use, like, you know, you're grandfathered in or you're parented in or you're auto-enrolled, you know, just because of their heritage. This kind of repentance and this kind of joining in the kingdom is something that that is a matter of an internal shift that happens and we move on from. Okay, now let's pick up verses 11 to 12, and John will differentiate his baptism from that of Jesus. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We have a surprise ending, I think, in this particular passage in verses 13 down to 17, because Jesus himself came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Bill, would you pick it up and read 14 down to 17? But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is a complicated passage, just to admit. Why did yeah. Jesus need to be baptized if he mm-hmm. was perfect? I mean, that's what John's asking. You know, I can't even carry your sandals, and you want me to baptize you? But it is confusing because everything John just said is about fruit of repentance, confessing of sins, and things like mm-hmm. that. And Jesus says, I need to be baptized too. So it, it, it is confusing. It <laughs> is a public beginning, if you will, of Jesus' ministry. Yeah. But, but what I love about this is that Jesus says... It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness in verse 15. There is a completion of the prophecies, of the expectation of the coming of the Messiah. What happens as a result, and this is the very last part here in verse 17, what happens as a result of Jesus being baptized and all of the people seeing it? The Father affirms him. Mm -hmm. So it's any false misconceptions we might have about this. The Father himself yeah. corrects it. That's right. He yeah, says, no, right. he's not a sinner like you, even though he's identifying thoroughly and completely with his nation, with his people. He'll do for you what you can't do for yourself. But he's not like you. Yeah. I'm really grateful that Matthew 
and some of the other writers included John's hesitancy in baptizing mm-hmm. Jesus because I get that. I mean, I, I would, f- yeah. who am I yeah. you know, to do that? Sure. But I also love what God does with it. You know, what we see recorded here, he hesitates. He asks Jesus, why in the world should I baptize you? And Jesus responds, no, I'm, it's not necessarily about my specific repentance. It's about the fulfillment of righteousness and what God's trying to do on this planet that we're all invited into. Mm-hmm. And as a result, <laughs> because John agreed to it and obeyed his calling in this role of baptizer. As a result, God ends up imprinting before everybody the identity of Jesus Mm -hmm. as the Son of God, the one who is loved, the one who he is well pleased Mm -hmm. with. And in that act of baptizing Jesus, which is so counterintuitive, John actually points to Jesus in a way that absolutely underlines his identity. Mm -hmm. You know, as we think about that, and our own identification, you know, how can we point to Jesus? Well, we're not all baptizers. Very few of us actually are in that role. But that understanding of dying to sin and being raised to life, that understanding of our dependency on God, and that understanding of the identity of who Jesus is, those things are transformative. And hopefully our lives live in such a way that we point to Jesus and other people want to experience that too. talking about John the Baptist and how he lived a life that pointed to Jesus and uh, there how the Baptist part of his role and his name contributed to that. We're going to focus on one more way John's life pointed to Jesus in part one of this podcast about John the Baptist and I've got a question for you that I think will be helpful to you as you think about this next part of the conversation. All right, who comes to mind when you think of the prophets in the Bible? There are a lot of them. By one count, there are 88 prophets mentioned in the Bible, 63 in the Old Testament, 25 in the New. And so does John the Baptist come to mind as one of those biblical prophets? As we're going to see, that seems to be a big part of his living a life that pointed to Jesus. And so that part of the conversation after this reminder. Well, I hope you know how much we value these times we get together to study the scriptures with you. Uh, This table that we get together around with a chair left open to remind us that you are here as well. Uh, This table has been a place where our faith has grown. And we've heard from many of you that it's been the case for you as well. And you know, that's one of the things we've discovered together, that place always matters. Thanks to our Bible geography expert, Dr. Jack Beck. That's always one of the questions we factor into reading and studying the Bible, because geography and location always matter. And so coming out of this part of the conversation about John the Baptist and baptism and John baptizing Jesus, let me recommend a video that Jack Beck did on the wilderness and the Jordan River where the baptism took place. It's part of a video series Jack did with us here at Our Daily Bread Ministries called Along the Road. And in episode two of the seven in that season, Jack Beck takes you to the wilderness and talks about Jesus' baptism and the time of temptation that Jesus went into right after that. I'm not going to lie, the production and scenic photography of these videos is stunning. And uh, Jack has such a winning way of teaching in those settings. So here's how to access this video series called Along the Road. It's on the Our Daily Bread Ministries YouTube channel. And so just open up your web browser and type Our Daily Bread YouTube Along the Road into the search. 
The uh, results will point you to the Along the Road video series that I hope you will watch. We highly recommend it. Again, type Our Daily Bread YouTube Along the Road into the search. And now let's explore how John, being one of the people identified as a prophet, was a big part of his living a life that pointed to Jesus. When you think of a biblical prophet, who comes to mind? Elijah. Is he like your favorite? or just No, just he was the first one to come to mind. Okay. okay. <laughs> I think of Isaiah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And is he a favorite or he just came to mind? I never thought of him as a favorite. Mm-hmm. It just seems such a powerful uh. voice in anticipation of what would later happen. Yeah, I'm kind of torn between Elisha and Jeremiah. I really mm-hmm. love the Elisha story because mm-hmm. the way Elisha points ahead to Jesus. But what I love about Jeremiah is that he was not just presenting a message. He himself was deeply affected by that message and often wept over the dark things that he had to tell the people were coming. Mm -hmm. And I think anybody who can preach on judgment Mm -hmm. without a tear in your eye or at least in your voice probably don't really understand the message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a lot of emotion in them, Bill, and I think that was really well said. The role of the prophet, I remember learning this early in my life, is to both foretell, which is to predict what's going to happen, and forthtell, which means to bring the truth out. And it's usually an unpopular truth, you know, and, and to say it often before it's happened and get people's attention. Those two words have really helped me as I read the prophets to foretell and to forth tell. Mm -hmm. A role that John, we call John the Baptist, occupied is that of being a prophet. And I find these passages about him being a prophet a little bit challenging and kind of confusing, to be honest. And I'm not going to pretend like we're going to tie it up with a bow in this conversation, but let's dip into this and explore what kind of prophet was John? Because clearly he had a prophetic role. You know, just as we start out up here at 60,000 feet, what have we seen so far that tells us, yep, he was prophet because he both foretold and he forthtold? He more forthtold than foretold, I think, in the text we've seen to this point. He was more challenging the religious status quo, and he was really kind of taking on the system in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so the forthtelling, getting the truth out there about the situation, was, I think, the dominant part of his prophetic role. Yeah, and telling the truth about who we are, who God is, mm-hmm. how things really work in God's kingdom. That's kind of the, the truth that he's describing. There is a little bit of perhaps foretelling Although I feel like that's always tricky with the prophets because we think of it as like detailed descriptions of what's supposed to happen, but that's not really the point. Mm -hmm. It's like Mm -hmm. this type of thing Mm -hmm. will happen if, and there's always a huge if, if you don't hear the truth part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he definitely fulfills that role because Mm -hmm. even with his comments to the Pharisees and the Sadducees of like, hey, bear fruit in keeping with repentance And then he goes into a foretelling, so to speak, of this description of, and if you don't, then think about the consequences Mm -hmm. that could come. And he describes this ax that's at the root of the trees and the trees are going to be cut down. And there might not be literal trees that are cut down, but the idea there of Mm -hmm. experiencing the consequences of the decisions that they make. Some kind of loss. It's interesting because as as I hear you, you're almost describing his, his negative 
foretelling in a way that almost obscures really the, the huge positive thing right. well, that I he's think, pointing forward to. Yeah, and I think the passages we've looked at so far are consequential. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to be couched that way. And we're going to look at a couple of passages today that might shift our attention and see how his foretelling was also positive. Let's go to Malachi, Malachi 3.1, which is pretty familiar to us. And Malachi's name means messenger, and, and he says in 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Okay, and then if we go on, looking at chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, what are you going to see there? Uh, Daniel, would you grab that for us? See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. What does that mean? He talks about sending Elijah or Elijah's going to reappear. Most people hold that the same person as the messenger comes right before the Messiah. We've talked about Mm -hmm. John being the forerunner and he's going to come before the day of judgment. And the mission is here in this second part here. He will do what? He'll turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. What What is that? that I mean, know what you're going to ask. (laughs) I have always wondered about that. It is not clear to me. Mm -hmm. Well, it was core to the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Paul picks up on that theme in the New Testament. It's the first commandment with promise to honor your father and mother, and then gives instructions to parents on how to love their children. But I think also the concept of God as father was not totally prevalent to Israel's past. They saw him as their shepherd. They saw him as their king. But with Jesus coming to see us adopted into God's family, the imagery of God as father takes on a different primacy. So I'm wondering if maybe that has something to do with it. Okay. But here it goes directly to the message to the people or to the effect of this messenger will be that the parents' hearts will go back to their children and that the children then's hearts will go to the parents. Where I go is in Deuteronomy 6 where the parents are instructed to teach their children all Mm -hmm. that has happened Mm -hmm. and specifically to think about that, you know, the Shema, which is, Hero Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that area. And then it talks about teaching your kids, writing that instruction so that they're, it's always before them and they're always remembering it. And in the process, it sounds like the result's going to be the, the parents are concerned about their children and future generations, yeah. not just about themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I wonder if you take it to its most simplistic core level. Mm-hmm. When we're right in our relationship with God, it impacts our relationships with others, even our most personal relationships within our families. I think when my heart is right with the Lord, I'm a much better dad. Totally. Yeah. Well, Um, and I think this goes, we're talking about the prophetic role that John occupies. You know, this forth telling, we've seen him be pretty in their face, you know, as he's speaking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and et cetera. This is the mission. This is what he wants people to focus on, is the rightness of what God's going to be sending his Messiah to accomplish. Before we actually look at one other passage, I want us to just touch on John chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. John talks about, or he answers the question of, is he a prophet or not? Daniel, would you read that down just 19 to 23 of John 1? Sure. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. 
He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, he said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. He's answering the questions pretty straightforward. I Mm -hmm. mean, are you Elijah? No, I'm John. Mm -hmm. Right? He's being straightforward. And when the second question is, are you the prophet? There was a Jewish tradition that there was going to be a great prophet along the lines of Moses. And they're asking him, are you that prophet? And he said, no, that's not me. Because that was kind of a messianic role as well. Okay. All right. Now let's go back to Luke 7 verses 24 to 28, and this is actually Jesus speaking. This is the first time we've looked at Jesus speaking in response about who John is. Mark, could you read that? After John's messengers left, Mm -hmm. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury in palaces. Mm But what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So is Jesus saying that John is a prophet? He's saying he's a prophet. He's not saying he was the prophet. He's differentiating, exactly. And I, I love the way he talks about, and he's not a guy in dressed in fine clothes who's in the palace and all, and it goes back to all that we've already underlined about John's message, about John's character, about John's role, the, the foretelling. But he does honor him as well. He goes back to the Malachi passage of, I will send my messenger ahead of you. And his name is, I will prepare the way for you. I mean, that's really, and the way is what? God is gracious. The way is grace. The way is something we can't provide for ourselves. And all those are the roles of prophet that John assumed and integrated in his being, creating a life that points to Jesus. is another important piece of the story of John the Baptist and his living a life that pointed to Jesus. As we learned there, John certainly wasn't the typical prophet, uh, if there was such a thing as a typical prophet, but his fulfillment of the role was similar in some ways to a lot of the prophets that came before him in the way that they always seemed to point toward the joy and hope of something so much greater, pointed to the coming of a perfect Messiah, pointed to Jesus. Well, with that, the Discover the Word team wraps up the first half of this two-part series titled, A Life That Points to Jesus. And there is still a lot more to cover when it comes to John the Baptist's life that we'll talk about in part two. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedding. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.